Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to Life in the Peloton, being brought to you by MAP. MAP are striving to produce world-class apparel engineered to excel in all conditions, at all levels of the sport. You might be riding at the pointy end of the bunch or just riding because you love it. However you roll, you deserve apparel that matches your everyday move. Well, coming up today, we have got a monster, the Melbourne to Warnable, and I'm naming it the Australian Monument. We're going to take a deep dive into the historical 129-year-old race. There's only one, one-day race older in the world. That's pretty crazy. The 129th edition of the race was two weeks ago, and I was lucky enough to be in the car with the new grassroots team, Team Duda. I guess you could say I was loosely being a director sportif, but I got the chance to absorb the atmosphere of the race. Having never ridden it before, I wasn't really sure what it was all about. I'd obviously heard so much about it over my time growing up and right up till today. So we have a massive episode. I want to take you on the road with me in the car with Team Duda. But before that, both you and I had to go back and learn a little bit more about this race, the history of it. Guys, later this week, we've got the next episode of the Life in the Peloton Chronicles with Swain Tuft coming out for the Pelo members. This episode is going to cover one of Swainos and I's favorite topics, saunas, sauna life. We speak to a sauna builder, the sports stocks as well, and scandos, as in Scandinavians, the motherland of saunas. Sveno and I also chat about our experiences with them over the years, the performance stuff, but more just how it serves our lives. It's a bloody great app. I just love doing these deep dives into these topics that Sveno and I are really interested in on the Life in the Peloton Chronicles. If you're not a member, get over to lifeinthepeloton.com and sign up to the Pelo to get access to these episodes. Unfiltered, no ads, long format apps coming out once a month. Plus, there's a whole lot more for you guys. If you're up in the echelon or back in the doom line, sign up and find out what you guys are going to get too. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three years, I've been drinking AG1 every day. It's just one scoop mixed with water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel really good. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and lots more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also very simple. My daily routine consists of me getting up early in the morning around 4.35am, walking out to the kitchen, grabbing my shaker, mixing up some AG1, and that's where I start. From there, I go into the office, do a little bit of work. Once the kids get up, I get with them, have some breakfast, get them ready for school, and then maybe go out and do a little bit of exercise. After all that, around 10am, I grab something to eat. I just love starting my day like this. I feel that it really neutralizes everything. It allows me to absorb the goodness that AG1 provides me. And from there, it sets me on a great path for the day ahead. My energy levels are balanced and I've got the goodness in to take care of the bits and pieces my body may be lacking. If there's one product I recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1 and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership in your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash lifeinthepeloton. That's drinkag1.com slash lifeinthepeloton. Go across and grab yourself some. Let's get into this episode. It's a big one. Enjoy, guys. Melbourne to Warrnambool. The Melbourne to Warrnambool Classic is a one-day race which started back in 1895. It is Australia's oldest one-day race and the world's second oldest one-day race after Liège-Bastogne-Liège. The first edition was run in the direction from Melbourne to Warrnambool, but between 1896 and 1938, they ran the race from Warrnambool back to Melbourne. In 1938, the route returned to its initial direction, starting in Melbourne and finishing in Warrnambool. For the first 100 years, the race was run as a handicap. The route started in Melbourne Centre and followed the Princess Highway down to Warrnambool on Victoria's western coast. The riders would leave from different intervals, the scratch punch being the last to leave, and they would go in pursuit to catch all the riders in front of them. But from 1996, to much dissatisfaction, the race was changed to a scratch race. By 2004, the race had increased its length to 299 kilometres to claim the title of the longest UCI one-day race on the calendar, with a UCI race status of 1.2. 
These days, the race has been shortened to 260 kilometres, starting in places on the outskirts of Melbourne like Werribee or Laverton. They now incorporate some hills along the route, but true to the history of its race, the primary difficulty remains in the length and the strong crosswinds. The first race on the 5th of October 1895 was won by New Zealander Andrew Calder in 11 hours and 44 minutes. He left with a two-hour handicap over the Scratchman on the 165-mile, 265-kilometre trip. He suffered a punch in near Geelong and lost about 20 minutes, but he still crossed the line first with a 31-minute lead. The fastest time that day was recorded by Jim Carpenter from the Scratch Bunch, who took 10 hours and 52 minutes and finished in fourth place. Of the 55 riders that entered, only 24 started and seven finished the original race. Olympic gold medal cyclist Dean Woods has set the fastest time, which still stands today at 5 hours and 12 minutes in 1990. I have marked this race as an Australian monument. It has the credentials, the undoubtable history, the length, the stories. But seeing as I've never ridden it, I've gone away and I've chatted to a few significant people to help you and I both understand what makes this race so special and indeed, is it really at monument status? First, I want to get the whole picture of the race, why people love it, what's the draw and what it means to win it. I spoke with Tim Decker, a man who has not only won the race, but he has ridden it 21 times. I grew up racing with Tim and it was always what he spoke about. The warning was what he trained for. It was what he thought about every day. Yeah, look, uh, my name is Tim Decker, ridden the Melbourne Warnable 21 times have a lot of experience on it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we are talking to Mr. Melbourne and Warnable, but there's actually someone who rode the warning more times than you. Yeah, there is. There is. There's a, uh, a guy that uh, rode it 40 times. It's amazing. What is it about this race then? Well, I mean, the distance, obviously, um, the history, the past winners, and then the, the unknown, like how hard it is to get your name on that honour roll. And the unknown of the winner, it's not very often that the winner is known uh, early in the race. You know, sometimes it, it, it can come down to, you know, when I won it, it was like, uh, you know, the last 50, 100 metres that I got over top of a guy that was away. It was actually away and I got over the top of him, you know. Um, in recent years, we've seen Cam Scott, for example, you know, attack a group and uh, Jensen Plowright did the same thing with 1K to go and just hang on and take the win. The way the course is, it's, it's not the most mountainous race, but it has the wind and the, the mental challenge that you've got to, got to be able to really regulate yourself to be switched on all the way to, to get the most out of the finish and uh, read the race well. What's your experience with the race? Right back in the beginning, <coughs> learning about the race before you even rode it, doing those 14 editions before you won it and then going on to still race another seven, eight times? Yeah, look, my experience started at a young age, um, actually listening to the, you know, the final 10K on the radio. So they used to play the final 10K of the, of the warning and commentate it uh, on the radio and, you know, as a 16-year-old just getting into cycling, coming from BMX. My uh, uncle used to have that playing in the shed and then, you know, I'd be listening to that and the, just, just that, again, that unknown of who was going to win really drew me in. And then, you know, the, they'd, show, they'd show it on the news later that night, you know, who won and, um, yeah, it, I, I was attracted to it um, pretty much straight away, you know, and then uh, my mentor, I was 17 years of age and he said, oh, what do you think about the Melbourne Warnable? And I was like, oh, yeah, that's what a race, hey? <laughs> it didn't even, wasn't even thinking about, um, you know, probably even riding it at that age. But he said, oh, I think you could win it one day. That sprint really suits you up there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about the 299k before, 298k? Before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wasn't too fussed about that. He, was <laughs> he just, he just uh, believed that I could win it um, because the sprint suited me up there. So, yeah. In those years, look, we, we're going to dive into and understand that the race has changed over these years. For 100 years, it ran as, as a handicap. And you were one of those people who got to race it in the two eras. Yep. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my first experiences were as a handicap. So I did three editions of a handicap. I think it was three or four maybe. You know, the, the, the first one started in the middle of Melbourne. Wow. You know, racing through the streets of Melbourne, over the Westgate Bridge, and all the way down that highway to Warrnambool, you know. Um, and the first couple of times I didn't get through. Um, you know, the first time I was off second scratch. Then the following year, I won the, um, it was called the Shipwreck Coast Handicap. It was 160K and it was like two weeks before the Warrnambool. And uh, I rode off second scratch there. And I remember I had this, you know, new pair of shoes on for that hmm. day, you know, because I used to, I love me equipment and tinkering and all that sort of stuff. And I remember, you know, starting that handicap and I was like, oh, geez, these, this feels odd, these new shoes and all that sort of stuff. But... <laughs> In the end, you know, after 160k, I couldn't even feel my feet, but um, I managed to win the handicap. But what that did is put me off scratch for the warning. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, so my second attempt uh, was off scratch. I, I think I got, you know, around the 150k mark, and um, you know, this is back in the era when uh, I reckon Robbie McEwen and a few of those guys rode off scratch, and I, I was never that good. They were super talented guys coming back from Europe, and. You know, I got 150k and uh, got spat out the out the back. But you know, that, that's that's all part of learning the lessons of uh, mm. you know developing developing yourself as a rider. And then I, I come back the the third year, um, and I was back off second scratch. I was off with a few good guys and and some guys that uh, you know I'd been training with and that sort of stuff. And we're going over Mount Moriac out the other side of Geelong. You know, just undulating hills and it was windy and uh, there was a crash in our bunch and I was sort of mixed up in it and the people I that fell off that, that were around me they, they all jumped in the car and I was like yeah where's my my uh, car and I didn't have one and I thought oh well I might as well keep rolling and I'll have a at a power bar back in the day mm -hmm. the old power bars had a power bar and I'll I'll wait for scratch and I'll get off at the next feed you know mm. and I got in with scratch and um I'd never seen my car along the way you know the people that were feeding me so that power bar and my only water bottles all the way to the finish and I finished with scratch and uh, that was the year that made me go, oh, okay, maybe something's possible here. Mm. And um, What did you think about when the scratch race era started and that I guess that, that idea then was planted, I can maybe do something here, but the, the, the ball, had, the game had been changed. Now suddenly everyone was racing off the same mark. It was essentially a normal race, I would call it. Did you like that idea? Did you not like it? Uh, well, at, at the beginning, nobody liked mm. Nobody wanted it to be a scratch race. Um, but they, they really had no choice because they didn't want riders spread over an hour. So, you know, the Warnable, when it was a handicap, the, the limit group was, went off an hour earlier. And they didn't want riders spread out that much, um, especially early on. You actually had to recalibrate. Like, I had to actually recalibrate my mind that it's now a scratch race and it's totally a uh, different way of operating. Mm. So, you know, like early breaks or not early breaks, how you're going to look after yourself. Whereas before, when it's a handicap, you know, you're riding with your group. And, and you know, I was fortunate enough to uh, do some handicaps in that era with Bulldog um, when they had the Melbourne of Yarrawonga and the Melbourne of Warney. And, and so I had some really good teachers Mm. in in around the handicap system and that sort of stuff and i knew the 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 power of the group and uh you know what it was to work efficiently as a group and that sort of stuff so i had to recalibrate to now scratch race mode mm. and and how to read the race and all mm. that sort of stuff so that took a couple of years as well um but i knew you know once it had gone to scratch race that um it gave me more of a chance because mm. You weren't relying on the handicap of whether you got up or didn't get up, you know, so. Well, how can you prepare for it? And, you know, and that's the thing, like, unless you're in that scenario, you've got to put yourself in that scenario out training. Very difficult to do that. There's a lot of bailouts. Why am I doing this? <laughs> yeah. You know, in yeah. a race scenario, there is no bailouts. Like, maybe there's no lift. So, you just suddenly have to take your mind into a new spot. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm not sure that people do the, the length of training that maybe we did in the past. You know, I was quite specific on the way I prepared for the Warnable. It was a combination of, of riding some races and a, a tour. The year I won, I knew I was in amazing condition because of the accumulation of what I'd done, but also 
I did uh, three 300k rides, right? And I did them around the same course, and I did them over the last uh, five weeks into the into the Warrnambool. And basically, I I just measured how long it took me each time, you know. And from the first one to the last one, I was like 45 minutes quicker. So mentally, I was I was so robust mm. around the the endurance stuff, you know. You weren't um, scared to go there. It was like hell you, no. Yeah, <laughs> like when you felt fatigue, when you felt hunger flat, you're like, cool, this will pass. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I've already been here before. Yeah, that's right. Look, I I cramped. Uh, 80k to go so we we're going through uh camper down at the time and and uh actually i seen my my wife had driven down with our newborn he was seven weeks old and and i cramped as we went through camper down but i seen them on the side of the road and i was like oh shit i've got no excuse now i have to win no matter what you know mm. and even sprinting up that final straight you know my legs were like in a bad way, but but I just had no option. But I, but I trained for that. You know, the the warning comes around once a year, but I'm not sure many people really just prepare for the warning now. Um, and it's a shame because those longer races, uh, you know, you need that in the system for when you go into Europe. Mm. You know that that trans translation from what we have here to to go into Europe. Finally, Tim, I guess Melbourne Warrnambool. Is it the Australian monument? Yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, people, people quite often say, oh, well, you know, we've got the Grafton to Inverell as well. And, and it's fine to have two monuments, for example. But, uh, again, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be hilly to be a monument. You know, they, they, can, they can have different characteristics. Um, and I would say with the... Warney, you don't know that winner, and that's what brings the real prestige to the Warney. You know, it might be one in every ten years that the the winner is away with thirty k to go. Is the outright favourite and rides away? Yeah, yeah. yeah. one in every ten years. But every other time, there's an opportunity for people that have prepared for it um, Mm. and people that want it, and that that's what makes it really beautiful. Now to understand what it was like to race this race as a handicap. One of the ultimate legends of Australian cycling and of the Melbourne to Warrnambool, Peter Bulldog Bazanko. Bulldog, as he is more commonly known, is a three-time record winner of the Melbourne to Warney. He shares this record with his cousin, David Allen. Bulldog not only dominated the Warney, the Australian road scene, but he also represented his country at five world championships on the road when the likes of Bernard Hinault, Greg Lamont and Yoop Zoldemilk were winning. Peter Bazenko, I guess we're here to talk about the Melbourne, Melbourne to Warrnambool. It's got the history. It's as old as Liège, Bastogne Liège. It's older than Paris Roubaix. It's got that history. It's got the distance, and it's got the characters like yourself, so everyone can understand. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Peter, and your story as a cyclist. Those years that you were racing here in Australia, but your time overseas. Yeah, I started out Coburg Cycling Club when I was 13. I'm now 69, fully retired from the bikes and 13, and then uh, just raced with the amateurs and with limited success and uh, until I got a training program from my cousin Don Allen. We're first cousins and... And uh, I remember him dropping in home on his, one of his stints to Europe and that dropping in home with his, you know, oh, beautiful-looking suit and suitcase. And I remember thinking, God, uh, gee, that would be great to do something like that. It will be good enough to race in Europe and that. And, and uh, anyhow, he gave me a training program. I thought, Jesus, that's a bit harder than what I've been doing. I'm like, <laughs> going for, for rides with mates and then go to stop at the pub on the way home, have a couple of pots and... And uh, anyhow, anyhow, we uh, I turned pro when I was nineteen or twenty, and had my first son tour when I well, yeah when I was twenty. I was in Don's team, Don Allen's team. That's when we had twenty four riders, eight eight teams of three, and you do oh probably well back then it was in miles. You do like a ninety mile stage in the morning and seventy in the afternoon. Yeah, it's sort of. Yeah, I've sort of started racing uh, back then and 
with my first Sun Tour in, in uh, 75, and I rode my last one in 1996, so 21, two years later. I kept saying to people, I won, I won the Sun Tour when I was 21, and uh, I said, oh, I'm tr- still trying to win my second one. So <laughs> I, I actually rode 20 Sun Tours and two DNFs through Broken Bones, and in between that, I raced in Europe a few time, few years, rode five world championships, uh, won a pro race in Belgium. Well, you won three Melbourne to Warnables, and that's what we're here to talk about. You're only one of two people to win three Warnables, David Allen being the other, your cousin, is that correct? That's right, yep, yep. So there was something in the blood, in the, in the, in the family there, about the Melbourne to Warnable. What I want to know is, tell me a little bit about this race, back when you were growing up, understanding this race as you were coming into cycling why did this race mean a lot to you before you even got to the start line i guess initially i, I um got intrigued with the race uh for a guy who won two warnables uh, bruce clark we used to train train together with a little bunch of coburg riders and that and and uh yeah i was sort of infatuated after bruce won his second time and and um, Mario Giramondo, Aggie's father, he won it twice. And, yeah, it was, it was a handicap back then. And Scratch would give away starts of 60, 70 minutes. So more or less we'd be starting in Newmarket in Melbourne. And, and uh, the limit bunch is halfway to, oh, they're nearly at oh, the other side of Werribee, yeah. halfway between there and Geelong. And when David, David won... He won his third Warnable. Uh, I actually ran three thirds and a second behind him when he won his three. And then, <laughs> then uh, anyway, in the year he was killed in a car crash, I, yeah, I, I did a strange thing, but heading, heading out to the start line. I, when I left home, I cut a little picture of his head and stuck it on the head stem. And just uh, when, when you have a bit of a bad time or that in, during the race, you know, I'll just look down because he, he was the hardest man that ever hurt me on Australian soil. And, yeah, I suppose we had the same blood running through our veins and that, but... but Every, everyone wanted to win the Warnable. Yeah, like you're saying before, it's a, it's, it's a in a lot smaller way a monument in Australia to, to win that, and and uh, everyone wants to win it. And it was a handicap, and so everyone had a chance um, back in the day. But tell us a little bit about a handicap because it's a bit of a foreign idea now in the world of cycling. Back when you were racing, it was quite common. There were some other really big handicaps. Most races were handicapped. The Melbourne at Yarrawonga, a famous one as mm. well. There was the Melbourne at Ballarat. There was, there was a lot of them. I'm missing hundreds. Yeah. But mm. the Warney, tell us a little bit about being in the scratch bunch, the last group on the road. You almost had to be like a team. Well, you did really. Always had about between 10 and 20, 20 starters off scratch. Actually, I remember one year where there was about 27 on scratch. Year Dean Woods got the fastest time. It was a tailwind all the way. It took five hours and 12 minutes. You've got to tell me about this. Well, yeah. Let's interrupt this. Yeah. I don't even know how this is possible. Yeah. I, look, I worked I it out here the other day. Yeah. <laughs> 50.9 kilometres an hour for yeah. 265 kilometres. Yeah. You guys must have been spinning your ring off. It was... Oh, it was How is uh, that possible? I can't even imagine doing that now with the today's aerodynamic bikes. Yeah, well, I always, always um, prayed for a southwesterly wind, which is a headwind all the way. And this day was a southeasterly, and you get a bit... A southeasterly wind, or northeasterly it was, uh, you get them about once yeah, every 15 years, and... And the fastest time, for, as I said, five hours, 12 minutes, and still didn't catch the, catch the, front of the, the, the winner, which, you know, people, when you tell them about the stories of that, that in Europe, and they just couldn't believe you, you gave away so much start. <laughs> and uh, I personally, I would have preferred to ride as, uh, the scratch race uh, version of it that. I, I rode one. That was, uh, that was my last year, and I ran seventh in that to Chris White, and... But, um, yeah, well, that's just the way it was. It was, yeah, there'd be 20, 10 to 20 off scratch and you'd just, you'd just start swapping turns from the, when they fired the gun and it wouldn't, wouldn't be different, completely different racing uh, now back back then. But, 
But then when we went overseas and raced, like, this is all right. There's no, no handicaps here. You just, just got to race against the bloody Mercs or the So there's a handicap as it was. And what about your name, Bulldog? Peter Bulldog Bazanko, pretty much everyone only knows you as Bulldog. And we're talking about this scratch bunch. Someone had to organise a group because you guys had to be a team, yet you still had to beat each other in the end. So there almost had to be like a chief, a boss almost, to say, hey, guys, look, this is what we're doing. You either do it this way or you're out the back. Is that sort of how it was? Where'd this name come from? I think originally it was my nickname was Bull Terrier when I was a kid, and, and then it's graduated to bulldog so uh, <laughs> i still accept it <laughs> but um yeah you're pretty pretty right mitch uh, it was normally the guy who had number one saddle cloth and and uh who, who would have won the Vic- the australian championship the year before and he was sort of deemed as the boss and uh, of the bunch and that and and um we sort of come to an agreement that we'd, we'd just say well we've got to work turn turn for turn and I used to say, uh, I'd say everyone, everyone gets paid pro rata if, if we catch the front, the front group and that, and which I got into a lot of strife of uh, yeah. uh, when it come to pay out time and that. And some guys would want, want the same money as yourselves. And I'd say, no, nah, no, nah, well, pro rata means pro rata. I said, if you, if you work turns and, and you push on the pedals a bit harder or you, or you don't, you get, I used to say, you get fined. And uh, I said, if we all ride like that, soft shoe all the way, I said, you never catch a front. And so I guess I was a bit of a hard, hard person like that. And, and maybe someone getting $1,000, they might have got $50 or $100. But I think they learnt from that. Well, talk to me about the difference from those times and then we're talking about the racing now, but... You talked about the prize money. The Melbourne Warnable was such a prestigious race. There was a lot more money around. The crowds, from what I understand, were bigger. There were five, ten deep coming up the finishing straight. I was down there just on the weekend, and it still had that feeling, but, you know, there was much less crowds, you know, a few hundred people floating around. Unfortunately, it's a different race. Tell me about when you were racing. Yeah, yeah, well, it used to come straight up uh, Raglan Parade and from about the last three or four, five kilometres, there'd be people six deep all the way to the finish line and that mm. would be, you know, heat, you know, really spurring you on and that. And, and, and then you had the, that, last, that last hill before the finish is uh, like Mount Everest when you're <laughs> 265k in your legs, but um, it's... One of the spots I used to, yeah, it's like to make a move in the last 10k in the morning, and um, yeah, ran the speedway it was about 10k out, and uh, one day, one year I went to attack and my chain snapped, and I, I thought I'm not even going to get me medal here. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was huge, it was huge. Like the the crowds were, yeah. Like I I went down there uh, present the trophies a couple of years ago to um uh, the boys and. I, I couldn't believe how how uh, many people that were there. I couldn't believe. Well, the, where are they? Or this is the Warnable, and and I don't know. I don't know. The, we used to get a heap a heap of publicity for it, and and it'd be you pick up M- Monday Sun on um, after the race, and you'd have the whole spread, middle page, front front page sometimes, and 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 lead up you know the week the week leading up to the race and the interviews with riders and that and but there's none of that now like you know i over nearly missed the race myself because i still i still watch i watch it on my phone and the nutrition now is such a big part of the game guys are having you know 10 12 bottles over 270k mm. i from what i understand there wasn't really any feed zone for you guys so i'm just imagining you guys did two bottles is that even possible is that right you weren't allowed to get a bidden of anyone. It's outside assistance was called, and you immediately disqualified if you grabbed a grabbed a bidden. So how I used to used to, used to ration it like a like a biafran in the, in the <laughs> desert and that. And so I'd start. I had two biddens on the bike, and I always uh, put one under the seat. And I, stra- I strapped it with a toe strap. Occasionally, I'd put it in in uh, in my feed pocket, but you needed you needed that f- for your feed, now because you 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 wouldn't get any any assistance, no food, and yeah, no, it was quite 
quite unbelievable. Like he, stinking hot day. So I used to have my, well, my experience of riding the race so long and that I always made sure I had a full bidding for the last sixty k from Terang. Wow. And and I and I'd ration that like yeah. yeah. And so one bottle for two hundred k practically, and then six the last no, sixty. Two. I'd have two. Okay, two. So one under the sea. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and um. And then I made sure I had a full one. I remember one year there, I poured Terry Hammond asked me for a drink and that. I thought, no, I've, I've, I've had to ration. And he was, he was white as a ghost and he's all froth around him, around his lips and that. And I said, sorry, mate. <laughs> and I just had a big guzzle out of mine. And, yeah, it was pretty hard doing that. And, but, but that's how it was. It, it, it was cruel. <laughs> Speaking of nutrition, like you'd get up... You get up at the, uh, like we'd start about seven or eight o'clock and six o'clock, you'd, I'd always have an eye fillet steak. I couldn't stand eating to shovel that down first thing in the morning and, and uh, bowl of rice with it. And, and uh, yeah, you used to have the idea that, oh, we're going to be in the saddle seven hours and that, and you're not going to have something solid in your guts and then all the, the nutrition that now and the, the bars and that you have. Uh, it's unbelievable. What would you take in your pockets? Oh, I'd have jam sandwiches. Um, depends on the weather. On the on the day, it was hot. Some days were hot. I'd just have fruit, chopped up apple. Uh, didn't have squeezies. Squeeze, yeah. What do you call them there? Gels. Yeah. Gels. Didn't have gels back then, but uh, the Mars bars would melt on <laughs> Just lollies and jelly beans and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah, it was... <laughs> Quite barbaric. What about the training leading into it? Was it just another race and the long races that you were doing around the calendar prepared you for that? Or was specific training for the Warnie? Yeah, no, I was uh, sort of cranked it up about the last six weeks. Uh, I always I worked as, uh, as a plumber and uh, I always had Tuesday off and, and half a day on Thursday and, and the other days you'd train before work. But, yeah, I'd crank up the, the last six weeks and just taper off the last... The last week it sort of, uh, and Friday, the day before the race, it, <laughs> I had this favourite cake shop. I'd, I'd have a pie, a pie and um, carbo lo- load with, with um, cream cakes. And <laughs> so that, that was my preparation for it. And yeah, but yeah, even, even there, there were times you couldn't even get a wheel if you got a puncture. And I, I remember one, <laughs> one day there, uh, Barry Burns, I think it was. Now, now Barry had four biddens at the start. He had two on his bike, and he had a, a, a triathlon's bidden cage on his under his back seat. And we'd we'd gone about five or ten k, and and he's hit a cat's eye, and <laughs> two of his biddens had jumped out the back. I thought, oh, you're in for a long day. <laughs> uh, what's funny that. Is that how it sort of sometimes unpacks? Because what I want to talk about also is the mentality and that becomes a massive element that you have to be mentally strong because not only the racing was hard, but you had to understand the nutrition when you're out, when you're hunger flooding, you had to find a way to ride through that mentally. Tell me a little bit about the, the mentality of, I guess, your own preparation, the way you would go into the race knowing it was going to be a tough day because you were known for that, your name. Bulldog, I've heard about the story about our, up Mount Buller. I've heard about Melbourne Yarrawonga. These things, these stories, tell me a little about your mentality. Just through experience over the years, I think um, there's plenty of guys who can ride up to 200K in that, but there's a small amount that can go to like 265, 70K in that. Now, getting back to the, every bike ride, I'm sure, has hunger flat at some stage, and you never forget that. The first time we get the bonk and, and a man with a hammer comes down or you've got a koala bear on your back and <laughs> can't get rid of him. And Yeah, you, you, you learn from that, but you, you also, in the, in the Warnable, there's always one, one flat spot, at least, at least once in the race, that you'd, you'd hit and, um, yeah, you just... Oh, I don't know. You just, I used to just think, this, I've had this before, it'll be gone in 10 or 15K. 99 times out of 100 it would, and, but then there'll be a day like I was talking about before, the, the, the Dean Woods, uh, I had a flat spot in that from the start, and I, I climbed off a bike at Camperdown, and I, I thought, I can't go any faster, they're going that fast, and, and I, just, I was in, had a shit day. <laughs> so... Uh, much to my dismay, I had a DNF that day, and yeah, so I guess we are human after all. But, but um, 
you, the mental side of the, uh, you, you just been through cycling's a very hard sport as we know I'm, I'm, and I'm extremely biased and I watch all the classics to this day and that and love I love the game and um yeah well it's it's um yeah so you've been through the hard times you've been in the in the gutter and I was like that's the term put them in the gutter and that <laughs> And I still still see it happens to a lot today. And <laughs> <laughs> what makes what makes a warnable winner? You know, we've seen the transition over the times, and I think it's the same thing as the handicap winners from way back, right through to today's winners, where it's a scratch race, and it is predominantly Australian-based riders. There's still a toughness. It's a mental toughness. What is it? Is a physical toughness? Is it luck? What makes a warning winner? Yeah, well, all all those things, Mitch. Um you know, I was so I was so pleased to uh, see Mark O'Brien win win this year. Uh, when I was down a couple of years ago, he ran third, I think, and and uh, and I and I could see he was pretty pissed off, and uh, and I thought I know I know the feeling, mate. I've been there, been there, done it, and and I said I ran three thirds in the second before I won my first Warnable. I said, don't give up, mm. <laughs> and uh, so I was really really riding him home on. The, with a beer, actually, when I watched it, <laughs> where, where we are now at home. <laughs> I feel there was a golden era of the Warnie. Maybe it's because it was a time when I was looking up to the riders in the Australian domestic scene, and I really felt the race meant something. It had UCI status, it was super long, and the pros from Europe were coming back and racing it. I felt it had enough credibility that if you won the Warnie in the 2000s, or place well, it meant something to the European teams. We're gonna hear from Simon Gerrans now about how winning the Warnie helped him make that jump to Europe and ultimately turn pro. Simon Gerrans, let's talk about the Melbourne to Warnable. I'm naming it the Australian Monument. It's a classic. It's the second oldest race in the world. Tell me what that race meant to you when you came into cycling, what it was on the stage. You know, as, a, as an Aussie, you know, you're looking up to that race. Yeah, absolutely. As an Aussie, there were a couple of races you really looked up to growing up in, in Victoria. It was obviously the Sun Tour, but the other big one day race was the Melbourne to Warrnambool. It was a race that you always paid attention to and you always aspired to participate in. And, you know, eventually, hopefully one day get a result in. Tell me about what you thought about that race, because it had only recently just changed to a scratch race. You're talking to the older guys who did it as a handicap. What was it known to be as a tough race, tough man did it? What was the opinion of the guys you were speaking to? It was probably known as the toughest one day race. And it's obviously the length that has a big part in that. But at the time when I participated in, in the Warney. There were a few of the old handicaps still around. Mm. The, the Melbourne to Yarrawonga was still around. I think Melbourne to Shep, Melbourne to Ballarat. There was a few of those old traditional handicaps were still very much on the scene. But the Warney had gone across to, to a scratch race. And I think that was just to open it up a little mm. bit more. But speaking with the guys that had, had raced it years before, and particularly the guys that raced it as a handicap, it was known as the hard men's mm. race. And you look at the, the honor roll from the years before and the, the guys that were won it were some of the toughest guys that, that raced, particularly domestically in Australia. So there was back then, it was in October. It was a different period of cycling and in the Victorian scene, it was the end of the season was the pinnacle part of the season. Like you said, the sun to have followed. What a great build up. Now we've seen it transition to February or where the summer of cycling is in, in Australia, you've got the Tour Down Under, you've got Cadells, then you've got the Warnie. It sort of fits now. But back then when you raced at October, what was the feeling? You were going into the Sun Tour. Was it a preparation? Was it time to have your form, time to show? Yeah, and we're looking about 20 years ago mm. now. And it was the, the high point of the Australian cycling calendar was the end of the European season. Unlike now where the racing calendar really kicks off with the Australian summer of cycling, Back then, the big race on the calendar was the Sun Tour, and there were a couple of key races leading up up to the Sun Tour as well. So when I participated, it was the week before the Sun Tour. So a lot of the international riders that had come out to, to race the Sun Tour also did the Warnable. So they arrived maybe a week or so before the Warnable, competed in that, then the Sun Tour, and then I think a few of them actually went on to New Zealand mm. to, to race again after that. So that was definitely the, the highlight of the Southern Hemisphere racing calendar. And that's when, you know, the racing was at its, was at its hardest. Melbourne to Warney, at that time of year, 
was that a stepping stone for you to make that jump across to Europe? How did that help to sort of show the European team that you were ready to come across? Was it like that or was it seen differently? It was definitely a, a, a race that for me was a stepping stone to turning professional. I'd already been racing in Europe for a couple of years. So I went over as a uh, second year under 23 rider and that was in the year 2000. So I had a couple of years racing on the European calendar, mm. but 2003 was important for me because that was actually my last year in the under 23 category. Mm. So I was getting desperate for that pro contract. Um, so I came back, I'd competed, you know, the European season in, and ended up in a team that folded at the end of the year. So I came back early to Australia and I was competing in all the domestic races, still trying to grab some attention from, from the professional teams. And I had a great run of success and, and the Melbourne to Warner was a big part of that. Mm. So that definitely caught the attention of a, of a number of European teams. And I feel was, a, you know, an important element for me of, of turning professional eventually. Were you feeling that pressure? Like I have to win the Warnie and this is going to be the key or was just another piece of the puzzle? No, it was definitely just another piece of the puzzle. The weekend before the Warnie, I won the Bobo Classic mm. and then, yeah, obviously won the Melbourne to Mournable and then the first stage of the Sun Tour, which was the week later, it was a crit- opening criterium on Ligon Street and I took the yellow jersey after the first stage. So I was on a really strong uh, run of success going into that point. And I remember throughout the Sun Tour of that year, being in phone booths with mates who are in professional teams that were calling their directors for me and passing the phone over, trying oh. to help me get a, a pro contract in Europe. That was the sort of the process that we were going through um, to do that. So yeah, definitely that string of success and the Warnable in particular was a really important part of sort of my development as a rider. It's quite funny there. You mentioned three completely different disciplines. The Ball Ball Classic is a very steep, tough climb. Melbourne Warnable, crosswind, flat, long, and a criterium. The form was clearly there. Yeah, the form was absolutely there. And, I, and I, as I said, I come across a, a, off a, a European season. My last race in Europe was the Tour de l'Avenir, where I was racing as a stagiaire, as a guest rider mm. for uh, a Portuguese team alongside Ben Day, funnily enough. So yeah, I was in, I was in really good form and just looking to capitalize on, on that form, come back to Australia and, and I was super motivated to, to get another gig for the, for, the, for the coming year. Tell us about the day, the Melbourne and Warrnambool 2003, how did it all come about? How did the race play out? You know what? I don't remember. I don't have too many vivid memories of what went on in the race itself. It was absolutely a race of attrition. It was a sort of a windy day. You know, at one by one, guys got eliminated out the back until we ended up with a pretty select group of riders uh, coming into Camperdown. And then there was another selection um, coming in just before Warnable. And I think we're racing into the sort of the, what is the outer suburbs, I guess, of Warnable with a group of maybe six to eight riders. And I was the first one to jump them. And I jumped them going past, I think it's the racetrack there that's on the left. There's one of those rollers just coming into town. And I was the unknown in the group. Mm. I, was, I was riding alongside guys that were racing professionally in the US. Uh, Matt Wilson was in the group. He was a pro with Francais de Jure at the time. So nobody was looking at me, race, this young Aussie kid racing in a, in a sh- local shop kit. Um, and I caught everyone unaware. I jumped off the front and had the legs to ride off into the distance mm. and they didn't see me again. It sounds like there's been three periods or maybe more, but from what my sort of remembrance of the Melbourne and Warrnambool is you've got that sort of amateur handicap era you've got this period in the middle here which was like pretty pro and you, you mentioned you know FDJ you also had Kiel Carls from there you had Scott Mollinger American Rob McLaughlin an ex-Olympian so like a bit of a pro era there as you spoke about Matt Wilson as well but then now we've also seen it go back to almost a NRS level did you feel that, that it almost had a different feel to what you see it as now and previously, that era that you rode through it? Well, actually, back then, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it was the UCI credited race, so mm. actually UCI points to win that race, which was, which was significant at the time, particularly for people that were chasing points at the end of the season. If you could line up in the warning and you know, score a few points to add to the tally to the end of the year, mm. and you, everybody had UCI points and it was directly correlated to your contracts at that mm. point as well or, or your negotiating power with contracts. So it was a different phase of the Warney, as you talked about, from that domestic sort of handicap race where it was the Australian-based riders who really focused on it to the years where a few professional teams would participate as well, chasing those points. And now it's gone sort of full circle back to an NRS event again. Do you think now being over and raced and winning the monuments yourself, the biggest ones, and I'm trying to compare it to some of them because it is 
you know, back, it's got a bit of a history with those races, Liège, Bastogne-Liège, Roubaix started a few years after the Warney, ironically. So the Warney has got that history. It's got that length. It's got that sort of feel about it. Clearly, it doesn't have that stature of those other races. What about you? Someone who's been over there and done all the big races, won them, competed in them, won the Warney as well, add that to the list, the sixth monument. What do you think? Does it sort of have any kind of similarities? It definitely carries on the Australian calendar that prestige that a classic does or a monument does on the European calendar. Mm. I think if you're – and there were for, for years Australian-based professional riders and this was the big one-day race for mm. them, um, the most prestigious, longest, toughest one to do. So it definitely carries that locally and I think when you speak to a few of the locals in, in Warrnambool, they mm. love the, the Warney and they love the history of the race and, and they love that plaque there which has all the, the honour roll of the race itself. So there's definitely a, a, a huge element of that to it. But from a, from a racing perspective, I think what it did for me, it sort of made me aware that I had the ability to go long, those really mm. long, hard races. When everyone else would fade, I would stay the same. And mm. that's why I was, I was good after sort of six hours plus of racing. Apart from yourself, it gives you that confidence in your own mind. Okay, when I get to these races, I know I've got in the, in the in the tank. I know I've done it before. I can prove that to myself. What about the European teams? We've seen guys like Jensen Plowright, Cameron Scott. These guys have gone on after winning the, the Warney to become professional. I'm not saying that is the ticket for them, but do you think that gives some World Tour teams or the European team something like, okay, we don't know really of these domestic races in Australia, but at least this Warnable race, it's got history, plus it's a 260 or 270k race. So if they can do that for seven hours, they must have something. Well, I think particularly for riders like Jensen and, and Cameron, who have come largely off the track background, it probably really shows the mm. European teams, hey, these guys are trackies originally. That's where they've, they've honed their craft. But they can show and they can go the distance as well. They can compete over six hours. So I think what it does, it, it really shows how complete a rider will be as well. Um, so it's it, no doubt they, they look at all the races that these guys have participated in and, and where they have their achievements. And having the Melbourne Warrnambool certainly doesn't hurt. What about yourself? You think you want to reappear back at the Melbourne Warrnambool? Give it one more try? Not, maybe not with a number on my back. <laughs> maybe in the Dirty Warney. Is that close <laughs> enough? <laughs> right up in the Dirty Warney again. But um, it's, it, again, it's a race that uh, I, watched, I watched the end of it on TV. I was at home here with the kids and, and I definitely tuned in to watch uh, Marco take the honours this year, which was great to see. I don't think I'll be lining up there again as a competitor. But yeah, as you said, it's a race that I hold very close to my heart and I always pay attention to who's doing well there. Finally, guys, I've wrapped it all up because I had to get on the road and understand what it was like to do the Melbourne to Warning. This time, I'm sitting in the car with Team Duda. As a director sportive, I've got a different eye on it, yet I still had to do the research and understand what it takes to win the race because I was instructing these guys what to do, giving them feedback on the radio. Sit back and enjoy coming on the road with me and doing your very first Melbourne to Warning. All right, well, here we are. I have just driven down from my place to Avalon Airport, which is sort of a fair way out of Melbourne, actually. And we're here for the Melbourne to Warrnambool. Um, this will be 265.9 kilometres. It's no longer from Melbourne to Warrnambool, but it is still a long race. Um, a long time since I've been at a bike race um, like this. You know, I've been to the Nationals, but they're not really the same. Today I'll be in the car and um, director sportive, I guess you could loosely call it, of Duda, an exciting new team. So let's see what the day brings. Let's see if I can um, get my head around that job. But also, I mean, I'm interested to see this race because I've never done it as a rider. It's got a lot of history. It's going to be cool to see. It's going to be cool to see. Well, we've got about four minutes to go to the start. It's been a pretty hectic sort of abrupt awakening to the old DS job, I have to admit. <laughs> I think we got there. We're in front of the race, which is probably not the right position, but we will get there. I'm joined in the car by our mechanic, Migros. Mate, big day ahead. Yeah, it is a big day ahead. I've uh, never followed, I've raced many times, we've never been in a follow car for this. I didn't know that. I thought you were like the experienced one in the car. I am experienced, but 
I don't know, not in car, I guess. I've, I've done it in France, but yeah, a little bit different. And Michael Drapak, he is probably the most experienced in the car, I guess, after doing some big races. Hi, Mitchie. Yeah, I've been in many cars and this is still the excitement, Still, it's still palpable here. I'm going to enjoy the day. Um, so I'll, um, I'll, look very, I'll, I'll be very enthusiastic in spectator today, Mitch. So if you need a handing, helping hand, um, I'm not sure whether I'll be able to do much other than be a great spectator. Well, it's going to be a learning experience. <laughs> Let's hope we win this thing. The iconic Melbourne to Warnall Road race today will uh, it started at uh, Avalon Airport and of course we'll finish on the iconic Raglan Parade in Warnable and uh, we hope to keep you well informed during the day. We look forward to your um, support throughout the race and uh, we, we um, trust that you have a great and safe passage to Raglan Parade. We wish you all the best and uh, we look to keep you informed throughout the day. Thank you very much. Well interesting start to the race we're about 5k into the race big crash you know there's always typically a crash at the start of races everyone nervous especially big races and um, you know unfortunately we didn't hear that any of our guys were down but then we found out one of our guys was down and in fact it was one of our our lead riders Pat Pat Drapak so a bit of a bit of a shock to the system early in the race but you know the race goes on Paddy's okay goes to hospital he won't be in the race but I guess we uh readjust don't we Rossi yeah we readjust I walked out there and uh Paddy he's all right he looked fine but yeah definitely needs to get the wrist checked all right time for the other boys to step up now break it two up the road we are in 256k to go we're about 70k in, about 200k to go, and the race, there's no breakaways yet. I just did my first bidden hand sling, I guess you want to call it. I handed my first bottle out, you know, gave a bit of a sticky bidden, which was exciting. Team car 13, let him go past, please, as the convoy closes up. <laughs> if you're not feeding, go back to your position in the convoy. Uh, there's a bit of, bit of ruckus back here in the convoy, I tell you. There's a bit of a race going on. So, um, yeah, so far so good. Our riders, our boys are still in the race. We've lost a couple. Paddy at the start and Kez just over the first little hills. But um, still got six up there. All right, Rossi, we're at about the 100K mark. And we've gone up. Nick White's in the break. We've got one up the road. And we're just going to do a little feed from the side of the road once again. Something I've never done. How about you, mate? What's the tips? Um... Yeah, no tips for feeding from side road. I guess they're going to come fast, fast, fast. So you got to be have quick reaction time. But um, yeah, they're they're coming now. The peloton's still pretty big. So yeah, best of luck. Here we go. They're actually coming. We better get into it. Hey guys, we're up here on your left feeding at the top of this small rise we're on the left feeding for bottles if anyone needs a bottle all right roscoe i think it's uh 10 to 11 i don't know if i can wait any longer oh, i'm bloody starving up here let's see what uh the singers they've packed for the old uh car crew today as you move some wheels around, good sound effects. This is the best part of the day, as I've understood, as the DS's. Is, is the pack, oh geez, they're big. They're huge. Oh yeah, this is looking good. Oh wow, look at this thing. This looks like gourmet bread. Got a bit of slice, Swiss cheese in there, nice bit of, oh, there's dark chocolate too. Sea salted dark chocolate, wow. This is, this is a highlight of my day so far. Well, no, not a highlight. This is another highlight. I guess we should talk about the race a little bit. Melbourne to Warney, it's notoriously known to be a bit of a flat, windy race. There's no wind today. A few rolling climbs at the start. Not overly hard, but I think what happens in this race is just builds up. Builds up on the legs. There's 157k to go. It's quite hot today. We're looking at about 24.5 degrees. 
clear blue skies, not much wind, like I said. So it's going to be the race of attrition. We have got Nick White in the front, six and a half minute gap, and the peloton is just rolling along. There's two teams starting to ride, but at this point, it's just um, I've been directing the boys to my favourite, eat and drink. Um, <laughs> I always hated hearing that as a rider in the right in your ear. You're like, I think I understand when I need to eat and drink, but. This is a day you need to do that more more than any time because it's going to be a race where you get to the end of it and you're going to be probably out of energy. Speaking of energy, it's time to uh, have my have my sanger, Roscoe. What are you? Uh, have you got your sambo? Are you going to go for it? Yeah, the sambo looks gourmet. This is uh, didn't expect this. Thanks, Team Duda. The lead group of three riders, B rider seventy six. 82 and 133 have a gap on the peloton of 1 minute and 50 seconds. 1 minute, 50 seconds. Well, we got 105k to go, 162k done. So still quite a long way to go and the brake is sort of rolling back pretty easy. The bunch is rolling along. We had just a chat with Terence Hoare, um, one of our riders, just to see if you want to spark things up a bit, you know, a bit earlier. He wasn't that interested. Um, he was saying he wasn't feeling great, but he's hoping to ride into it a bit and maybe can follow some of the big attacks later on. So, you know, we get into that pointy end of the race. It's been a bit of a refuel zone for the riders, for us as well. Let's see what happens. Well, Roscoe, mate, we've got 50k to go. The race is certainly lit up and we're well and truly in it. Boys are following the moves everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, it's been pretty active this the end of this race so far we got a uh, think four or five of them in the front group still they're real strong so hopefully they can follow the moves and get in the right one at the end most importantly how'd you get through the sandwich you had two goes at it didn't you yeah i've got a mouthful of chocolate right now as well but <laughs> on the second go of the sandbar i got about a quarter left so i'll save that for after the race Ah, uh, yeah, it's been an adventure here and five hours deep it's gone super quick you're pretty busy in the old car here all right, let's see what's happening with the boys. We've got the, we've got the TV on as well now so we can see what's going on in the racing, getting beeped and yelled at all sides. Well, 28K to go. Things have seriously got spicy. The whole bunch split in the crosswinds, but we have got three riders in the front of a group of about 20. So <laughs> this is awesome. This is so good. I'm actually getting a little bit sort of itchy feet. I wish I was out there in the crossies, but the boys are riding out of their skin. 10K to go, nine riders in the front. We have got Will Morton up there. What's going to happen? What do you reckon, Roscoe? I reckon he's got a good chance at the finish. Everyone is super fatigued and Will's been racing. He's got a lot of experience, so I'm hoping for the best. What do you think he should do? You said he's pretty quick, but it's a different sprint coming into Warrnambool. It's a little bit uphill. Notoriously, it's sort of a bit of a hard finish, a hard slog. What do you reckon is the best chance? Yeah, I think that in a small group like this, he just needs to follow the bigger teams and hopefully they overcommit coming into the finish and he just gets a bit lucky sitting on you know, a bridge lane wheel or an ARA wheel. But he is strong and I think, I think he's got a, a good kick for this finish. Well, Roscoe, there we have it, mate. I think our rider, Will, he was right up there, I reckon about fifth or sixth position. Mark O'Brien got away and took the victory. <sighs> big day in the saddle. Big day in the saddle for everyone. For us, what are we looking at? Six hours, 15. I don't know. What do you reckon? Did it go fast? Did it go slow? Six hours, 15, average of yeah, around 43k an hour. That's it's pretty quick for a race like this. Um, it definitely felt a lot less than six hours being in the car, but I can imagine that the riders felt every minute of it, especially at the end. What do you think, the history of this race, having done it yourself, having finished right up there, top 10? I don't know, like it's the first time I've really driven the whole route and, and done the whole thing. It's, it's, got, it's got that history, doesn't it? And I can see why. It's a real special race. Yeah, and it's always very similar every year. It's always just fatigued riders, split groups. Even if there's not much wind, it just breaks up every time. And after 250k, 
if you're a sprinter, you're not really sprinting at the end. It doesn't really matter. So yeah, it was a, a good finish and Marco snuck off the front, obviously strongest rider of the day, but yeah, really, really happy with how our team ride, rode. Finally, mate, give us the verdict. You've been in a few team cars, the first time I've driven one. What do you think? Have I got the legs to be a DS? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he did well. Um, I didn't feel too unsafe in the back seat, but yeah, it was good. Pat Shaw, a veteran of the Melbourne Warrnambool, a veteran of Australian cycling as well, still to this day. But you rode the Warney, what was it? Nine times. Top ten as well. So you know the race really well. Your old man won the Warney in the old edition when it used to be a handicap from second scratch, which is, you know, not that heard of. Tell me a little bit about your feelings towards this race. Oh, I mean, it brings a lot of emotion, I guess, just because of the historicness around it. And uh, obviously having my dad win the race and then finish second the following year um, is, you know, pretty memorable too. For me, it was never really a race, actually, I overly loved. <laughs> um, often, it's not at this time of the year. For us, Mitch, it was in October. And the legs were tired, the brain was worse, and um, so it was a difficult race. But evidently, um, the last year I rode was the best legs I had, but the break had 25 minutes, and we missed them by two two minutes at the end. But um, it's a great race, and um, it's great to see there's still a great passion behind it. What do you think it does for young guys? Like I, th I get the feeling there's the likes of Simon Gerrans who have used this race to, to propel themselves forward, but then you see a guy like today, Mark O'Brien, a guy who's sort of been there, done it, and just hanging around for the love of cycling. What does it sort of do to, to riders young and old? Oh, first, I love that Mark O'Brien's won. As much as, you know, I'm from Team Bridge Lane and we would have loved to go back to back, Mark's one of those creatures that really is probably in the background growing the sport, especially through his coaching avenues and also just through his character. Lovable guy and, you know, he's been many times the bridesmaid, so great to see him win. But um, I think it just showed that he touched the young guys up a bit today and it'll make them hungrier for the future. But if we have a look at Jensen Playwrights, the Cam Scotts, um, the Maeve Ploofs on the women's side that have gone to World Tour, probably off their victories here, it's uh, got its place and we need to make sure we save the event because, um, you know, when you can race 270 kilometres, it doesn't matter what level it is, it does show you've got some uh, form of, 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 of um, character and also ability just to get there. Um, older guy gets here today, younger guy gets there last year, I don't know, It's every year it's a bit different, but... It's, it's a tough race, and either you can do these races, Mitch, or you can't. And if you can't do these races, you're never going to Europe. Will, mate, we had you in the car. We're watching you up there. Fantastic ride, in my opinion. You anticipated the race. You are in the front. Look, you can tell me if I was right or I was wrong. How did it go out there? Because we only saw things from the car. What did you think? Uh, it was a tough day out. Um, just following moves all at the start with the boys. Whitey, TJ, all getting amongst it. Then the middle part... Everyone took it a bit chill. The race was like warming into it, warming into it. And then once we got on the beach and everyone could feel we're close to home, it was just gutter action the whole way home. 80 Ks in the gutter. And you just had to follow everything if you wanted to be there. You like this kind of distance, this long race? It seemed like you sort of came to your own towards the end. Yeah, yeah, I rate like attritional racing. Anything that's like just a hard day out and like the group just keeps thinning out, thinning, thinning, thinning my cup of tea I'd say very good representation from the team mate and I love being in the car following you well done Will Morton cheers thanks heaps for the support Mark O'Brien wow I called you yesterday to ask for about the favourites and you you didn't throw your name in the mix oh yeah I don't need any more people chasing after me docs it's uh, hard enough getting away I wore, wore the full stealth suit and all and uh, yeah I was getting no luck uh, sneaking away so just uh, it was very fortunate the way that race panned out with only a small break going early forced the big teams to uh, actually control it rather than uh, stacking the break early and getting marked out of it so um, once you got in that last 100k then it was just a battle of who had the legs and uh, yeah fortunately I was feeling pretty good Tell me about this race, the length of it, you know, the history of it, what it really means to win it, but also how you win a race like this. Is it the years in the legs? Is it the experience? Or is it just being a tough bastard? Uh, I think it's a bit of everything. I've, this is my 13th crack at it. Um, so I think I did it first in 
06 and because uh, um, my coach at the time was Timmy Decker who's very passionate about this event, won it himself and um, so he sort of uh, instilled that passion about the Warnie into me as well. So I always uh, come here when I can, absolutely love it. And it's 270k, the course has changed a little bit over the years but that last, if it gets the last 50k altogether, it's just this weird one where uh, normally when I attack because I'm so slow on a sprint everyone can sit on pretty easily but uh, end of a hard race like that, even if you're only hitting five, 600 watts, it hurts the legs of everyone and uh, becomes this real mental battle as well that you just on the peak like a flat road no wind and yet you're suffering on the wheel so it's a bit of a bit of a different race to anything else on the calendar and I think uh, a lot of guys just aren't used to suffering like that so um yeah it sort of brings uh, old diesels uh, like myself into it and um, yeah it's my favorite race of the year really well it's the second oldest race in the world it's up there with the big races Liège best on Liège Roubaix up there as well this is I know it's not over there in Europe but it's got that history that that you know that culture now your name's on the on the list what does that feel like amazing it's a race as I said that I've done 13 times I love I came here and watched back in the day before I could race it with uh, old heads like Simon Gerrans and Dave McKenzie and guys like that taking it out and then since then some of my best mates have won it as well and uh, I'd had a couple of podiums before and never could quite uh, get that win I never thought I'd get the opportunity and uh, it's just the way that uh, race fell today yeah having my name on the uh, on Ranglon Parade forever now is pretty pretty incredible awesome Marco thanks mate there's one thing that happened from the Everest thing. I've got him. Cam, I never actually said back on the Everest thing what happened that day. Since then, a lot has happened, and we're here at the Melbourne to Warrnambool. Mate, you've clearly recovered from the ruse. Yeah, that was uh, some pretty dark days after that. <laughs> Had a pretty rough concussion, so kind of week and a half, no, no bike time, just taking it easy. But uh, got back on the bike, started the uh, rebuild, and had this in the calendar, so... Fortunately, banked some good training coming into it and survived, so. Two questions for you. Have you done the Everest thing yet? No, but it is definitely on the to-do list. So uh, if you ever feel like doing it again, mate, just give us a buzz. <laughs> and I was, what I was going to say is that how does this compare to the Everest thing? But now you've done this, you can compare it the other way. How was your day out there? You've just rolled in, you're still breathing. It's a tough day. I rolled in with the winners in the car at 6.15. How much time have you done? So 6.49 ride time. What do we do? 380, 3.90 TSS. Pretty solid day on the pedals. I reckon the Everesting, she's only did half of it, but with a fair concussion, and I reckon that was harder. Beautiful, mate. Well done. Good to have you back on. Thanks, mate. Take care. Huge ep, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved going back and hearing all about the history of the race. And being on the road also was fantastic too. A big thanks to our partner in Life in the Peloton map and the Life in the Peloton crew working with me to bring you everything you see and hear. Like I said at the start of the episode, on Friday we have our second Life in the Peloton Chronicles ep coming out for the Pelo members. So if you're not a member, get across and sign up. Then next week, I'm going to be catching up with my mates, Durbo and Tom, to chat about what is going on in that crazy world of World Tour Cycling. That'll be across at the Race Communique. Get across to lifeinthepeloton.com because we've got lots of stuff going on over there. We've got a new story that came out last week, the Bikes and Beers adventure over in Adelaide. Have a read about that, plus all the merch that came out not too long ago. Check it out, guys. Love to see you across there. And until next time, take it easy. Cheers. That iconic music in this episode was composed by none other than the legend Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.